0: I'm excited about today's episode. You're listening to The Giving Leader, and I'm the host, Phil Ling. I am excited because Bob Russell is given us the time to speak with him. Bob uh, spent his whole career, pretty much his whole career, at one church, Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky, and when he was hired as a young man, there were about 125 people, and when he retired, there were 20,000 people. Today there are probably 30,000 people. Uh, dynamic 40-year ministry. He's the, the preacher's preacher. His teaching has impacted literally a couple of generations in style and content. So I'm thrilled with today's episode, the opportunity to speak with Bob, and thanks for being part of the journey on The Giving Leader. Thanks for listening. It's another episode of The Giving Leader. My name is Phil Lang. I'm the host. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church. You can go to thegivingchurch.com. And we are a consulting group working with hundreds of churches around the United States. I've been blessed over the years to be around some really amazing leaders. And what I've been trying to do on the podcast for the last month, and thank you, first of all, for a thousand of you folks downloading our first month's podcast is talk to some of those leaders, and especially with their little bent direction and the pieces that I think are amazing about what it is that they're doing. One of my favorite people is a guy we're getting ready to talk to, uh, Bob Russell. Bob Russell, or as Louisville Courier Journal called him years ago, just plain Bob, on the front page of the newspaper, when they're moving into the new facility, which was not too shabby. It was the largest church construction project in the United States at the time. Bob started off ministry in Pennsylvania and then migrated to Louisville, Kentucky, to a small church just getting going with dozens, not hundreds, or thousands of people. And it was called Southeast Christian Church. When he decided to ride off into the sunset and retire, they were 20,000 strong and had just moved into a new facility that had nearly 10,000 seats. Uh, amazing. It still continued to grow and is, is more impactful maybe today than ever before. So Bob now leads Bob Russell Ministries. First of all, Bob, thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, it's good to be with you, Phil, and I'm excited to hear about your new podcast and have a 1,000 people right off the bat. That's great.
0: It is. Uh, it's it's fun. It, it's it, You don't have any idea. You know, they're all over the country. You can look and see where they're from. You don't have any idea who they are. Um, you influenced a generation or two in your preaching Uh, i've never told you this i've known you a long time but i never told you this but years ago when i was just starting out in northeast ohio a little town called gambier preaching um, i wrote off to six or seven large churches around the united states and asked if they had tape ministries. and those that said yes i said can i get on and one was the living word southeast christian church bob russell and I started getting your tapes and listening to them. And you, for years, you were my preacher. Uh, I listened to you. Uh, I stole all of your illustrations. <laughs> um, I had to change my wife's name from Georgia to Judy. And my, <laughs> my son was easy because I have a son named Phil too. So that worked. And I, you know, when you use an illustration with rusty, I had to come up with something else. The, what stuck out to me all those years ago was you were the first guy that I listened to that was more conversational. And I don't know if that's a a phrase you would even agree to, but it was a conversational style of teaching and preaching. And I found that very easy and natural. And I know that literally thousands of guys you influenced over the years that would uh, listen to you preach. uh, When you were starting out, did you have others that were that style or was that something you've kind of created on your own that just fit you?
1: I always thought that it was an advantage for me to have not grown up with uh, hearing one great preacher all my life. Uh, I I went to Bible college with guys who came from a particular church where the preacher was well known. And when they got up to preach, they sounded a whole lot like that preacher. And they just instinctively imitated his style. But you know, whenever you're imitating somebody, you're always going to come out second best. And so when I started, I didn't have any particular rhythm or uh, style in the back of my mind, and I had to develop my own style. And what I turned out to be was not at all what I envisioned I would be in the beginning. If I could have chosen a style, there was an evangelist named George Stansbury who came to our church when I was a young man and he was the most dramatic preacher I'd ever heard. I was so impressed with him. And I thought, boy, I'm going to be like George Stansberry." but I, I didn't have it down inside to be like George. And uh, I, I eventually just did what came naturally. And for some reason, uh, at least relating to some
0: people that worked. I was, uh, Talking with Charlie McMahon, uh and Dave done a great job at, at Southbrook Church, and he's been there for 27 years. And so, one of the things I asked him, because he's a great communicator, is that when he started, how he preached, and now he preached, Now, has it changed? And and he said, most definitely, he has changed. It's been, it's uh, not as as linear. It's not as much driven by you know three points and and those kind of things. If you were starting out today. Would you do the same style, do you think? Or for this generation, would you do anything different?
1: I think I would have to do the same style of preaching because that's just me. But I would certainly be different for this generation. One of the things that I wish that I could have changed looking back is that I I stuck with one form for the most part, you know, three points and... uh, a few illustrations in conclusion and and my sermon structure was pretty much the same but now with the uh the variety of styles and the variety of forms that are presented I would have put a lot more uh visuals a lot more uh inductive preaching than I did originally but it was working for me and uh, uh but in this era I preached yesterday and had to write a new sermon for this church. I I preach a lot now, maybe 40-some times a year at churches, but I don't have to write a lot of new talks because I just change audiences, and that's a lot easier than these guys that have to write a term paper every week. But uh, I, I had to write a new sermon yesterday because it was a church where I preached a lot. And so I preached a sermon where there was not a discernible three points to it, and it was a lot different structure, and it went over well. And uh, I, if if I could begin in this era, I would, would change form and, and change structure.
0: Did it bring you anxiety when you were getting up and, well, and you know, you know you prepped. Yeah, when, when you're an old man
1: and you know there's a form that works for you, <laughs> you say it, it is. It, it's a little bit uh, more pressure. And I, I had one or two people come up and say, you know, I enjoyed it, but it was a little different than you used to do. And uh, I, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Somebody said, you know, you you can teach you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but if you don't learn new tricks, you're going to become an old dog. <laughs>
0: Uh, I think it's funny that George Stansbury influenced you, because I, I too listened to George as a young guy, fire in the belly. Yeah, that was Stansbury. <laughs> 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 that's, that's, that's when I was growing
1: up, we had, this, we had this 82-year-old preacher when I was a little boy, and he was about as, as dry as toast. And we had George Stansbury in for revival. And I mean, I listened to every word that he said, and I thought, that is fantastic. And uh, I, I had a dream of becoming a George Stansbury
0: someday, and it couldn't be further from what I actually wound up being. You had a long, fruitful ministry at one church. Um, it's not, very few churches in one minister's lifetime relocate once. You guys relocated twice at least. Right. Uh, and outgrew grew those facilities, had a dynamic ministry. Probably, it, it, you were a young guy when you, when you retired. Um, did you ever think of leaving? Did you ever, at any point in your ministry, have another opportunity? Because when, when somebody sees somebody like you do 40 years at one church, they always wonder, oh, is there something wrong with me? Because I haven't been able to do that.
1: Yeah, I don't think God calls everybody to stay one place for a lifetime. I think it's a real advantage when you can do that from a lot of different uh, perspectives. But when I went to Southeast, I, I had no idea that I was going to stay there for a long time. Uh, I had kind of a burden for the East Coast since I grew up in Pennsylvania. And in the back of my mind, I thought I would probably go back to either East Coast or even Western Pennsylvania and try to establish a, a beachhead there. But I, I I was things were going so well at southeast uh, that I decided eventually I wouldn't entertain an opportunity to go elsewhere unless I was disgruntled where I was There were two or three times that I considered going one one was as a young man there were probably seven or eight churches in our movement that were thought of as flagship churches, and one of those flagship churches approached me as a young man and said, we'd like for you to consider coming being our preacher. Well, that was an honor. And I churned about it. And uh, you remember Paul Carrier, Paul Carrier was a wise head, who was a friend of mine. And he said to me, when I discussed this with him, why do you wanna to go to church with a great past when you're at a church with a great future? Wow. And I thought, you know, that that's true. Why don't I just stay where I am? There were two other times. One time, there was a church in Philadelphia that approached me, and it was a tremendous challenge. It was a much smaller church, and I said I always had a passion for the East Coast, and maybe that's what I ought to do, and I churned about it, and I prayed about it, and I finally concluded that it was not God's will. And I, I stayed at Southeast and later I was I was glad that I did. People will come to Southeast and they'll look at the facilities and they'll see the people and they say, Man, you must have had a great vision for this church. And I'll say, Yeah, we're a little behind schedule actually. <laughs> that's not true. My my vision for the church when I went was that it would grow to maybe four or five hundred people and uh, somebody said when you see when you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. And and my, one of my favorite verses of Scripture is, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And I,
0: I never imagined what would happen in southeast, but I'm glad I stayed for 40 years. The, there have been a lot of things that have uh, changed in ministry. It's really rare now for me to have a client that does not have multiple locations. Uh, if you were... Uh, Younger and still leading southeast. Is that something would have come natural? You would have seen the vision for it, or do you think it would have been more difficult to embrace this idea of church with multiple locations geographically?
1: You know, that's one of the reasons I believe that I retired on time because uh, multiple locations was surfacing just about the end of my ministry. And even though I love the Lord and I love the church, and I'm just as passionate about evangelism as I am now, I didn't have the energy, and I don't think I had the foresight to see how successful uh, multiple campuses would be. I had some serious questions, and I still have questions about that. But for for our location, for where Southeast has been, Dave Stone did a terrific job uh, leading in seven or eight different uh, separate campuses, and it has been the primary source of growth and of reaching lost people. So I, I think it has been a terrific idea, and uh, I'm not sure that – I think I would have been a Johnny-come-lately on, on the uh, – Satellite campuses, so I retired at the right time. I still have questions about what's the exit strategy for some of these locations or 20 years from now, are they still going to be a uh, a, a Video campus which is which is the best way to make it a video venue or should we have uh, uh, Individual preaching at each campus just how uh, strong-handed should the uh, local elders be there are so many questions, but the other side of that, this is working so well right now, reaching lost people right now, it's going well.
0: You have some examples of churches that have had to spin off their campuses. So Hill and Seattle, when they went through their difficulty in leadership, they ended up spinning those campuses off this to be independents. Do you think if you were doing it and leading it, you would say, hey, let's keep that in mind. Let's put those in place, those exit strategies, even though we may not use them.
1: Yes, I think I would, from the very beginning, say if this – Uh, satellite campus if this individual campus decides that they want to branch off here is the structure here is the procedure that they need to follow so that we can we can uh, separate without having division and if if there has to be a revolution then there are gonna be a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of difficulties but if there is some structure there that channels Uh, what is to be done, we can part ways and still be uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ.
0: I was talking about social media. So located ministry, I'm glad that I missed that vote and did not have social media and Twitter when I was in the located ministry. Uh, Would you be doing it if you were still senior pastor at uh, Southeast?
1: Well, let me say, Phil, I just think the ministry is getting harder and harder it's a lot harder now than it was 13 years ago when I retired in a number of ways. Uh, I was on a panel discussion about three years ago at Southern Baptist Seminary in front of a group of preachers, and I was on the panel with two professors from the seminary, and the very first question asked was, what should a preacher do if a transgender decides to to join the church? (laughs) I called because I had no idea how I was gonna answer the question. (laughs) But fortunately, these two guys, these two professors had recently done a paper on that issue, and they went on for 10 minutes about if this, if that, here's how I would respond. It came my time to answer, and I said, you know what I think? I think I retired just on time. Because, <laughs> you know, I went 10 years ago. Before that, I didn't have to face that issue. And the same, same is true with social media. I think that makes ministry really, really tough. And you've got to have a tough skin because people will say things and, and make remarks on social media when they can be anonymous that they would never make to you personally. However, I do think that I would take advantage of uh, the opportunity to communicate with the congregation through email and through social media. I mean, you, you can have instant communication where we get a newspaper that was really, really good for a while. I think that the opportunity to communicate through social media would supersede that today.
0: I'm speaking with Bob Russell. Bob was a longtime minister at Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky, church that grew to be 20,000 plus. Uh, he's got a new book out, and it's on Moody. It is uh, after 50 years of ministry, and it has a subtitle. What's the subtitle, Bob? Seven Things i Do Differently and Seven Things I Would Do the Same. Give me a sample. What would you do differently?
1: Well, I think the first one uh, that I would do differently is that I would I would uh, operate more by faith and less by fear. Uh, When I first started, I was really apprehensive about a lot of things in ministry and things were happening so fast doors opened up and I was kind of reluctant to go through them because I began, when I was in high school, I was terrified to speak in front of 30 people in a class. And all of a sudden, opportunities began to open up to me to speak at conventions or to appear on television. And uh, I turned some of them down because I, I was fearful. Even when it came to uh, building new buildings, I would kind of pulled back the reins. I was I was blessed to have lay leaders around me who pushed me faster sometimes than I wanted to go. But one day we had a uh, we had a special offering where goal was to raise a million dollars in one day for some kind of expansion and we succeeded, and it got in the local newspaper, and then it was on the front page of USA Today. My picture's on the front page of USA Today with an article entitled, Raising Big Bucks for Churches. Well, Phil Donahue's show uh, was popular in that day. He was kind of the Bill Maher of that day, and I got a call from the Phil Donahue show inviting me to come on Phil Donahue and uh, talk about Raising big bucks for churches, and they said, "Now you got to understand, this going to be a controversial issue. There will be people opposed what you're doing, and that scared the heebie-jeebies out of me." <laughs> and uh, I, I went to our elders. I'm just a young guy, probably you know, 28, 30 years old, and I said, "Do you think I ought to go on the Phil Donahue show?" And the elders said, you know what, I, there'll be so much opposition. Uh, these people have sacrificed for this cause. And while it'd be an opportunity for you to share the gospel, it, it probably is casting your pearl before swine. Always have it good to have a little scripture to throw in there. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I said, no, I wouldn't come. But looking back, I think the Apostle Paul would have gone. Right. And uh, later when I had the opportunity to go on local talk shows and controversial uh, settings, I went. But I, I, I think I, if I can go back, I would be walk more, more by faith and I would learn to enjoy every victory that came along and enjoy every day. I was so focused on the next thing and so focused on uh, trying to get through without making a big mistake that I sometimes
0: didn't enjoy what was happening as much as I should have. When a church grows, a lot of folks listening to us have growing churches, large churches and staffs. Uh, my theory is there are certain things as the lead minister you will always do, you'll be a vision caster, you'll lead leaders, there's things you always do. But then there's some things that you will delegate to others as you grow and you have other folks around you. So selecting those is huge is you're, you're going to be, your success is going to be tied to who you select to be work with you as much as just what you do, so when you were hiring when you're looking for key people, did you have any philosophies did you look for certain kinds of people personalities did you like a mix what was how did you approach the whole hiring of key personnel
1: well, I had the when I went to Southeast, there are 120 people, and then when I retired at 20,000 and we were 300-some employees at that time. So I had to make a transition from being the pastor to being the preacher and kind of at the end, I'm the CEO, and that transition occurs gradually, but I, I think it differs according to your giftedness. Uh, I, I had to determine, where am I the strongest? What, what do I do the best? Then I needed to gather around me people who were competent in areas where I was weak to delegate in the area of my weakness and stay in the area of my strength. And uh, you're tempted to gather around you people who are like you, but you're, you're wiser, I think, to gather around you people who have different gifts than you do. You know, people talk about character and competency and chemistry, uh, but the, I think the larger the church grows, the larger the staff grows, the less important chemistry is. The chemistry on staff may be important when you got a small staff, but I'm not hiring guys to be golf buddies. I'm hiring guys to try to build the kingdom of God. So I'm going to hire guys who uh, are really good in in areas where they need to be focused and maybe in areas where where I'm weak. So uh uh, I, I learned to delegate, but I learned to stay in the area of my strength. And I think a, a preacher in a large church has got to say, "Okay, what do I do really well?" For me, my focus was on uh, teaching and preaching. So I scheduled that as prime time in what I did every day. And then I I was fairly good at. Uh, uh, at encouraging staff people, so I would schedule lunches or uh, meetings with staff people. Then I would spend a little time every day doing some pastoral work, because I didn't want to lose touch. I, I can't do all the pastoral work, but I could occasionally still visit in the funeral homes, and and there is a multiplication of whatever you do when the church is large, because the word gets out, you know, Bob Russell came and visited in the funeral home when my mother died. And sometimes, it, whereas in little church, they say, Bob Russell was there, but he didn't stay, but 45 minutes. <laughs> now just a phone call would make a difference. So I, I think a, a guy leading a large church needs to say, okay, here are my three or four priorities. Now, how can I delegate to other people those things that I don't Uh, enjoy doing, not very effective in doing. The longer you're the preacher, the more you ought to be in the area of your strength and the less in the area of your weakness. Uh, I I think so much depends on who you hire as an executive pastor. If you have the right executive pastor, a half-hour meeting or an hour meeting with that guy once a week can be invaluable. Uh, I would have a little piece of paper in my pocket every Sunday, and I'd just jot down the things that ticked me off. <laughs> <laughs> There's here. Somebody was late. How come the word was wrong on the screen? And then on Monday, I would dump those things on the executive pastor and assume that he's going to take care of them, and now I can give my focus to the study of the Word of God and
0: prayer. Were you always disciplined starting off in, like, sermon prep, or is that something you got better at?
1: Well, I wasn't a very disciplined student in college. I mean, I liked being with people, and I liked playing ball, and it was hard to discipline myself to study. So I I wasn't a great student. But my first church was my senior year of Bible college. I took this weekend church, and it was about 70 people. They'd been a weekend church for 100 years. And when I graduated, I told the elders, I don't want to be a, By vocational preacher, would you consider hiring me full time? Well, that was a tremendous challenge to that church. They'd been paying fifty dollars for me to come out on Sunday, so they had a two-hour elders meeting, and they finally decided they wanted me to come full time, and they would pay me seventy dollars a week full time. I was worth twenty dollars. Those other, (laughs) (laughs) but I think the Lord brought that into my path because the first day on that field. My wife left for work at 7.30 in the morning, and there I sat at the breakfast table and thinking about, how am I going to spend my time? You know, there's no office at the church. People aren't used to the preacher being there. Nobody's going to call. Nobody's going to stop by. And I thought to myself, well, I could go down to the drugstore and meet some people. I could get up a golf game. I could watch TV. But I thought to myself, you know what? I may be establishing some habits that will be with me for a lifetime. So I determined, we had a little room we called the study. I said, if I'm not in that room by eight o'clock, I'm late. Hmm. So I went in that room, totally isolated by myself, and I started writing a sermon for next Sunday. Now, Phil, when I was in Bible college, I could write a sermon in four hours, <laughs> maybe three hours at the
0: chapel.
1: <laughs> and, uh, but so by Tuesday noon, I'm finished with my sermon. I said, what am I going to do now? Well, I think I'm going to write out this introduction word for word. I'm going to read another commentary. I'm going to write out this conclusion. I'm going to read this over. And I got in the habit of spending four hours every morning, five days a week on a sermon preparation. And I saw my delivery, my content, everything began to pick up and improve. And that was a habit that I kept with me all my ministry. When I, when I moved to Southeast Christian Church, a year later, there was all kind of activity. People stopping by, phones ringing, and I told the secretary, look, uh, I'm going to spend the morning study. If somebody calls, you tell them, unless it's an emergency, I'll call them back afternoon. If somebody stops by, I just say, uh, he's busy studying, can I leave a message? And I communicated that to the congregation. You know, James Earl Massey, a great black preacher, once told his congregation, if you give me time to spend alone with my God and my Bible, I guarantee you, you won't go home hungry or embarrassed. (laughs) But what happens in so many ministries, we say preaching is a priority, and we know in larger churches in particular how important that half hour, that 45 minutes is. But if it's not a priority on our schedule, it gets shoved to late in the week and, and uh, Saturday night, and it, we're not nearly as effective. And I tell guys, you know, block off your prime time by your body clock and make that focus study time and turn off the phone because most guys put the phone right beside them in the desk, and then it lights up with a text message. They are diverted, and they say, oh, I can answer that with one word and answer it, and then there's another question, they go back, and I I just think we need to find some way that we're isolated, and we can stay focused on preparation for that message on Sunday. For me, that was a priority of my
0: ministry talking with bob russell bob longtime minister minister southeast christian church in louisville kentucky now he's got bob russell ministries you can find that at BobRussell.org. you can follow him on twitter at bob russell ky as in kentucky and he's got a new book out by uh, moody called after 50 years of ministry uh, give me another tease from your book I and mean, what you can pick whether it's seven things you do differently or seven things you do the same what well, any of you, either of those
1: well, I think an, another thing that I would I would do the same is that I would uh, uh, I, I would preach mostly expository sermons. Uh, there are some other things that are probably more exciting, more sexy than that in the book, and I appreciate you recommending it. But I think guys get so hung up today on the hip stuff of four week series, four week series, topical series that they're afraid to get in the scripture and really uh, study and deepen the church. So I recommend to guys uh, go through the book of Ephesians verse by verse, not just we're going to pick a few verses out of the book of Ephesians and my favorite, and we're going to do a four-week series on Ephesians. Go verse by verse. And when you do that, it deepens you. If you're preaching topically, you're just remembering some verses that can reinforce what you want to say. But if you're preaching expository, you've got to dig in, and read commentaries, and you're preaching from the overflow. And it deepens the congregation. Then if it takes you 16 weeks to go through Ephesians, come up for air for a four-week series on the family or Hidden Hurts or something, and it'll be a change of pace. But I feel like we're wearing our congregation out with one hip series after another. The other thing is, if you're preaching expository, and I'm not talking about a Sunday school class, Bill. I'm talking about application for each sermon. And, right. you, and if you make application out of the study that you're doing, you'll discover that hot-button issues bubble up in the course of that study, and people don't think, well, you're just jumping on a, a current event and get near to you. they're getting irritated. They're going to see, hey, the scripture covers that, and you're going to cover all kinds of topics that you, uh, that are very relevant when, that you're not even aware of sometimes
0: unless you get in here and study. You said just a little bit ago that you now are still preaching a lot, maybe forty weeks a year, which is a lot. I, I know I know guys that are senior pastors that don't think they're. <laughs> They're preaching. <laughs> well, I,
1: mean, I don't think that senior pastors ought to speak, should speak more than that, that many times because the bar is so high today. I'm going from church to church and using familiar sermons. I got road sermons that I can take. <laughs> But the bar is so high. You know, it used to be that preachers were compared to the guy across town. And the preacher was the parson. He was the person in town, respected but now they're not comparing you to the guy across town they're they're listening to Matt Chandler and Andy Stanley and Rick Warren on the internet and it's really hard for us to measure up and so you know to 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 preach quality sermons week after week is tremendous pressure it's like having a term paper due every week and nobody but a preacher understands that but you're under the, the clock starts ticking when you walk out of the pulpit on Sunday morning and you're under that pressure, that cloud all week long. So I don't think a preacher in a large church ought to be preaching 40, 42 weekends a year. That's probably
0: overload. You, years ago, I was playing golf and riding with you in a cart and you said something. You probably don't remember it, but it had impact on me because talking about this very subject, you said most guys die of overexposure. And I thought, that's brilliant. Um, you you're stand up front every week, and people get to, to pick apart and think about all the things you're doing wrong.
1: <laughs> Not only overexposure in preaching. I think guys make a mistake when they're up announcement period, promoting. Uh, as I, the longer I was at the Southeast, the less I was up front. And it's for that very purpose. They become so accustomed to hearing your voice, it's hard for you to keep their attention. And if you're going to stay one place for a long time and continue to be effective, I think you're wiser to limit the amount of time that you're in front of people. Then when I got up in front to make an announcement, they knew, hey, this is an important announcement, because Bob hadn't delegated it to an associate.
0: You're listening to the Giving Leader podcast. I'm Phil Ling. I'm the host. Bob Russell's my guest, longtime minister of Southeast Christian Church. We've been talking about his new book that's out after 50 years in ministry. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's been gracious to give us this time. I got one last question for you, Bob. Um, I've asked a lot of guys that have been at one, church's, or one church for a number of years the same question. If you're talking to 25-year-old Bob and you know what you know now, what advice are you giving?
1: I, I think that's a tough question. Uh, I, I think I would say two things. I would say, first of all, be joyful. And don't let uh, two croaking frogs or a few little critics rob you of your joy or else you're going to be miserable in ministry. You're always going to have opposition. And, uh, you know, once in a while, you can get up in front of people and say, Folks, I'm just really down today. I've had a rough week, and I just want you to pray for me and pray i get through this. And the congregation will rally to your cause, but not very often. Most of the time, regardless of what's happened to you, you better get up and say, This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And... Uh, uh, there's an old saying uh, about uh, if you act the way you wish you felt, you'll eventually feel the way you act. And you be, if you expect your congregation to be joyful, then you've got to be joyful. I tell young guys, I say, watch Joel Osteen when he preaches. Don't necessarily listen to what he says, but watch what, what his expression. And he has the most contagious expression and smile, and it lifts people up. And uh, I, I think we can be joyful always. And if not, you're going to ruin your family and uh, uh, ruin your ministry. The mood of the leaders, the mood of the team. The other thing that I would say is give attention to your family first. Uh, I am so blessed with a wonderful wife, but the way I treated her the first few years is a a crime. And I wasn't a bad husband. I was just... uh, distracted husband and i think a lot of guys in ministry are uh I, when i came to southeast i was so out of my league i mean i was from the country this church is in the city i came from a little church this church had the potential to grow large i had a ba degree from bible college this church was filled with people with PhDs, and i was overwhelmed and so i would give my best energy to the church all day long and i would come home and want to veg out just lie. i don't want to talk i just want to lie on the couch and and take it easy. And the person I love most got the least amount of my energy. And uh, uh, I came home one night after several years of these, that kind of behavior, uh, I would be short with Judy, not, you know, I'm nasty, but I would just be abrupt. One night I got a phone call from her. I tell this in a book, I got a phone call from her telling me that she was going to be home late because she was working and they were late at work. But I answered the phone so late that uh, the answering machine recorded what I the whole conversation. Ten minutes later, I looked, well, got a message, and I, I listened, uh, and it was my conversation with Judy. And I couldn't get over the energy in her voice and the deadness in mine. And uh, the conversation went something like, Bob, you having a good day? And I said, yeah, okay. Well, how? Uh, I said, what are you doing? I'm reading newspaper. Uh, Well, I just called to say I'm going to be late coming home. We got hung up in work. You want me to bring something home? You want to go out to eat? What do you want to do? Doesn't matter. And I listened to that conversation. I just read a chapter in a book by Bruce Larson entitled, Are You Fun to Live With? I said, you know what? I'm not not fun to live with. If I die, I want Judy to shed at least one tear. You know? I knew in my heart, if that had been the average person from the church, asked me, have you had a good, yeah, pretty good day. How's yours going? I'm reading this newspaper article about L football. Have you read that? Well, don't hurry to come home. Don't want you to have an accident or anything. But my wife, the person that means most to me in life, I'm, I'm grunting to her. And I decided right then, it's going to change. I'm going to shift gears. And I learned at the end of the day, when I walked away from church, four thirty five 5 o'clock, I would say, Lord, that's the best I can do today. There's I'm a little behind on a sermon. There's some emails that need to be answered. I'm gonna get up early tomorrow, but I'm gonna go home and give energy to my family, and I made a concerted effort to do that. And our marriage was always good, but got a whole lot better after that. Judy and I communicated better. And we teased each other, and we became better companions. You know, you remember Ben Merrill, uh, Phil Ben Merrill. He said every place he lived, he pounded a nail in the door between the garage and the house. He said people thought it was there to hang a hat, but he said that was a symbolic nail for me to hang all the junk that happened during the course of the day so I give attention to my family. And if I were talking to a 25 year old preacher, I'd say, you know, church is important, be focused on it, but there's something more important and that's the, the woman you lived with and the kids you're raising. You give them the energy and the attention
0: that they need bob you're a good man i really appreciate you giving me the time um it's good to see you even though it's via zoom on the podcast um i uh thank you every year when kentucky plays louisville <laughs> surely you don't root for kentucky do you <laughs> yeah i'm afraid i'm afraid so uh so i do i will root for a little kentucky's out of, well the, the,
1: the bible says the bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory <laughs>
0: Uh, you, you're a good man. Hey, folks, if you're listening, this is the Giving Leader Podcast. Phil Ling, I'm the host. Bob Russell's my guest. He has a book you can go and Google it, find it. Moody published it. It's called After 50 Years of Ministry. You can follow him on Twitter at Bob Russell K Y. Uh, he is the busiest man in show business. He's out there like James Brown in ministry, 40 weeks a year still preaching after 40 years at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, building a great congregation. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Phil. I enjoy you. Enjoy you a lot. Thanks. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. God bless. Thanks for being part of today's episode. It was a thrill, as I knew it would be, speaking with Bob. Uh, you're listening to The Giving Leader. I'm Phil Ling, the host. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church. If you go to thegivingchurch.com, our website, it's about our consulting services, but there's a book there you can download, and it's The Coming Generosity Tsunami, and it talks about what we see as the impacts of generosity in North American churches and and faith-based organizations around the country. So I hope you do that, thegivingchurch.com. And thanks for being part of another episode of The Giving Leader.